Hello, I'm Joita De. I'm an independent education researcher based in India. And I'm Amanda Gilbertson, Senior Research Fellow in Anthropology at the University of Melbourne in Australia. The two of us are working on a research project that explores uh, what we think is a desegregation policy. Uh, for this, we've done ethnographic research in three private English medium schools in Lucknow, the capital of Uttar Pradesh. Amanda, can you tell us a bit about how you got interested in this topic? Well, I did my doctoral fieldwork in two private schools in the South Indian city of Hyderabad. This was in 2009 to 10. And I was really struck by the fact that each of these two schools was quite homogenous in class terms. I observed that because higher school fees in general meant better quality education and better access to tertiary education and employment, private schools were playing a pretty big role in re reproducing inequality. Around the time of my fieldwork, a pretty significant new law was being passed called the Right to Education Act that sort of promised to change all of this. One part of this act, Section 121C, requires private schools to educate underprivileged kids for free. And I was really curious to know whether this policy could mitigate some of the problems of segregation and inequality that I had observed in Hyderabad. Many, many years later, I managed to secure funding for this project from the Australian Research Council, and I teamed up with Joita to carry out the research. One of the things that's most interesting about this policy is that it ropes private schools into a desegregation project. So we're used to hearing about desegregation in relation to state schools, but involving private schools is less common. Joita, how did this come about? So we talked about this with the uh, right to education members of the right to education drafting committee um, and by going through some of the policy education policy literature in India. Uh, it seems the idea of social integration through schooling has been around in these circles for a long time. Uh, the Kothari Commission report in 1964 introduces the concept of the common school system. Uh, the common school system is uh, supposed to be a neighborhood school where children irrespective of their socioeconomic strata will be attending. Uh, but this was meant originally to be a government school. A bureaucrat who was part of the drafting committee of the right to education told us that the committee acknowledged the irreversibility of privatization in the Indian education landscape uh, by and large. Uh, so the uh, common school system had to be imagined with private schools. That's fascinating. So we end up with a policy that essentially aims to turn private schools into common schools or neighborhood schools. Another really interesting thing about this policy is its scale. We're not just talking about a few schools and a few students here. Private schools are expected to ensure that at least 25% of their new entrance classes are right to education or RTE students. And the scale of privatization in India is such that this actually constitutes 2.1 million new RTE students starting school each year. Yeah, I mean, this is in theory, because we knew before we started doing the research that across the country, it hadn't been fully implemented. There was an absence of political will. There was opposition by private schools. In fact, in Uttar Pradesh, the state we are doing the study, uh, the policy hadn't gotten underway till 2015, which is five years after the act came into effect. And although this direct opposition is relevant to our research, our focus has actually been quite different. We wanted to understand whether and how the policy succeeds in schools that are trying hard to implement it well. Today, we want to focus 
on just one tension in the policy that was revealed through our research. We've been asking, is this policy primarily about access, that is about underprivileged kids getting to attend private schools, or is the policy primarily about integration, that is the school as an institution is transformed into a more diverse space? Joyta, do you want to tell us about the moment that got us interested in this tension between access and integration? It uh, happened one day when I visited one of our study schools in Lucknow. Uh, the principal and a teacher sort of came up to me very eagerly and they said, we have a story you'll be very happy to hear. Um, and uh, this was about, um, so let's call this girl Kritika. So um, the teacher had been approached by uh, a parent we'll call her child Anshu. Um, Anshu had requested that she be seated next to Kritika because Kritika makes very beautiful designs from paper cutting. And Anshu wanted to sit next to her, be her friend, learn from her. And uh, what obviously made uh, this common story of friendship in a classroom um, worth telling me is that Kritika is an RTE student while Anshu is not. And the teacher was right, this story would warm my heart. But I also wondered, uh, for whom is this vision of integration of, you know, class boundaries dissolving in the face of these sort of affective bonds? Who is it appealing to? Uh, does it hold the same meaning for Kritika? Does it hold the same meaning for her parents uh, or for Anshu's parents? Uh, well, how does it, uh, how is it uh, felt or thought about by those involved? Yeah, and I think one of the reasons the story really struck us at this particular moment when it, it happened, when we heard about it, was because up until this point, we had been hearing lots of stories uh, from various middle class actors um, about how uh, low income families don't care about integration. I remember quite early in our research, we interviewed a researcher from a really well respected think tank in Delhi. And she mentioned uh, during this conversation that some schools are educating RTE students in separate classrooms, which is a clear violation of the RTE Act. But this researcher didn't think that this was a major problem. According to her, low-income parents just want access to a better quality of education than they could hope for in a government school. Incidentally, it was, I remember being a part of this conversation and it was interesting, the phrase she used was, we should think of it as an income support policy. Um, this, this sort of resonates much more with the imagination behind a voucher system, uh, which is clearly not a desegregation policy. So we, we sort of started asking this question of ourselves, who does care about integration? Um, and we're pretty confident that the people who made the policy cared about integration. It's really clear from official documents in the language that's used that desegregation was central to the aims of Section 121C. This is a quote from one of those official documents. The larger objective is to provide a common place where children sit, eat and live together for at least eight years of their lives across caste, class and gender divides in order that it narrows down such divisions in our society. And in fact, unlike what was alleged by the sort of think tank researcher, it wasn't just uh, a sort of fancy of benevolent elites at all. In interview after interview, RT parents rejected segregated classrooms. Um, they did not apply to schools that had a reputation for teaching RT students separately. 
and post admission one of their big worries was that this would happen uh, for example one family told us that there was a reputed school that they had not listed in their preferred options because uh, the school had such a reputation for segregating their classrooms um you know the, she elaborated that we decided to leave the option out for our child we don't want our child to study there even if it is free and there were several dimensions to this kind of concern about segregated classrooms amongst our parents uh, one is when they were talking about it uh, they constantly used uh, one phrase that came up very often was bhedbhav which literally means discrimination that's how they thought of it and they worried that their children would feel humiliated at being taught separately just because their parents had not paid fees one mother commented um, they'll come home and ask why are we made to sit separately and how will we explain it to them uh, so you know the realities of class uh, and the humiliation around it um, so they were worried that the children would have to face up to it through this experience there was also another assumption that if taught separately their children would be provided an education of inferior quality uh one uh, rt parent said that there is this idea that if rich people come teachers come meaning that if only poor children are in a class teacher absenteeism becomes an issue this is not an entirely unfounded uh, concern it is more difficult for marginalized groups to demand accountability of most institutions and uh, there's a vast body of research that bears it out in fact there's a popular phrase that services for the poor are poor services which reflects this uh, sentiment and finally they wanted their children to adopt middle class culture so they felt that it was important that the children sort of sit and study together so this vision of social integration that we see in the policy resonates with rt parents both from a desire to be accorded equal respect which was very clear but also on instrumental grounds and yet when we spoke to bureaucrats again they seemed to be interpreting the policy as being more about access i remember one bureaucrat we spoke to in lucknow um, who was actually in charge of overseeing implementation she described the overarching aim of section 121c as greater access and we asked her about inclusion and integration and she replied yes of course that's there but access comes first and because she saw access as the most important goal of the policy, she was actually not overly concerned about schools that taught RTE students separately or about schools that were taking far fewer students than required by the Act. Now, this makes sense in many ways. A few RTE students in each school is definitely better than none, or we think it's better than none. But the whole idea behind the 25% requirement was that a critical mass of RTE students was needed to truly transform schools and to ensure that RTE students don't feel marginalized. So when schools only take a few RTE students and government officials turn a blind eye, this is an important mechanism through which the policy is transformed from a desegregation policy into an access policy. Um, okay, so we see then that the architects of the policy and the RT parents care about integration, but other middle class actors seem to think it's not as important and access is. So how does this play out in schools? So as Joita mentioned, we did field work in three private English medium schools in Lucknow. And we're going to focus on just one of those schools today, although we'll bring in a second school at one point, just to contrast. Um, but our intention of focusing on this one school is to illustrate how the policy is turned from an integration policy into an access policy. The school that we are going to focus on, we call Arcadia. 
It's a large elite school with some of the highest fees in the city, around 5,000 rupees per month. The school is located in an affluent area of town and has classes from nursery to 12th. The school prides itself on its progressive values and runs a separate afternoon school for disadvantaged students on the same grounds. This outreach school, as they call it, long precedes the Right to Education Act and was an independent initiative of the school, not prompted in any way by government policy. Now, Section 121C requires that underprivileged kids are educated in the same classrooms. So that's really quite different from the outreach school where they're taught separately in the afternoon with separate teachers and in Hindi. Arcadia was overtly positive about Section 121C, but we want to talk today about two different, what we call narratives of care that are deployed at the school to question the goals of integration or desegregation, furthering the idea that access is more important. The first of these narratives of care we call the inferiority complex narrative, and it entails concern that RTE students might feel insecure in desegregated classrooms. Joita, do you want to tell us a bit more about this one? Um, I mean, um, I'm sure you remember that the first uh, meeting that we had with one of the principals of Arcadia discussing the policy, um, she she talked about this insecurity and she used phrases like the children would keep comparing themselves. Um, another Arcadia principal explained in more detail and vividly imagining on behalf of these RTE children, uh, the principal said the child will develop anger and other things because the child will see the others with perhaps a very good pencil box. And we felt that this middle class concern for the distress felt by the RTE children who will study in proximity to middle class children uh, was somehow at odds with the more common RTE parents concern, which is that the child will feel humiliated if made to study separately. And this view that was expressed by Arcadia principals um, was also shared by fee paying parents at Arcadia. So all fee-paying parents we spoke to expressed approval for Section 121C in theory as a way for working class children to access a private school education. But some expressed concerns that integrated classrooms may not be in the best interests of the RTE student. One said, and this is a quote, RTE is fine. They should also be given equal opportunity study. But she worried that RTE students, quote, might feel inferior and it would be better to make a separate classroom for them. Like teachers, these parents drew on narratives of care to construct an argument for segregated classrooms. Um, the second narrative of care that we saw very prominently, we called that the no differentiation uh, narrative. Um, it also arises from this previous one. Uh, since the primary concern of Arcadia teachers is that the RT students might feel insecure and because they are different, their primary strategy for implementing RT 121C is to invisibilize these differences and uh, to not differentiate. Uh, in this excerpt from an interview with an Arcadia teacher, um, I'm going to speak uh, as she did, uh, she said, and you realize how important this uh, non-differentiation uh, is to her self-presentation as a good teacher. She says, um, as a teacher, I don't differentiate children. I forget that these are RT children. If management does not tell me these are RT children, I do not know. Actually, we teach all children equally. We don't differentiate. We don't differentiate, meaning it doesn't come to my mind only. 
कि दीज आर आर टी इट डजेंट कम एट ऑल बिकॉज वंस वी आर टीचिंग वी फोगेट एवरीथिंग सो इट डजेंट कम एट ऑल इन माई माइंड close quotes um so arcadia has designed specific practices in response to 121c for example the school supplies stationery and there are rules about what students can bring for lunch uh, to avoid students competing for best stationery or lunch but all of these policies are intended to invisibilize the difference of rt students and to maintain an image of homogeneity rather than address any vulnerabilities they might have And this really contrasts with another school in our study that runs separate after-school homework help classes free of charge for RTE students. This other school has taken more RTE students, the full 25%. They've also made changes to ensure teaching caters to all students including the RTE students. They talk openly about the policy and all fee-paying parents we spoke to were aware of the policy. Now this might sound far better aligned with the desegregation aims of the policy but according to teachers the school has experienced middle class flight several of the fee paying parents we spoke to were actually planning to move their children from the school to another school when they were older so would you then say that this contrast shows that you know arcadia adopts a narrow vision of access uh by which like we've said means just simply uh, underprivileged children being able to attend private schooling while the other looks more at a notion of adaptability where uh, the school as an institution uh, transforms to meet the needs of all students yes but the fact of middle class flight from this other school also makes it clear that the arcadia approach really does make sense in a lot of ways So we're not suggesting that the concerns expressed by Arcadia um teachers principals parents about RTE students feeling inferior are unfounded. The measures that they've introduced to avoid comparison between students are exemplary in many ways. But what we think is less justifiable, more problematic is using these narratives of concern to justify segregation. Um Yes and in fact uh, I felt that the outreach school at Arcadia is also key to shoring up this narrative of care and segregation. Uh, all Arcadia teachers and leaders are very vocal about the separate school um, for this about this outreach school uh, and many of the fee paying parents we spoke to in fact said that they chose uh, Arcadia because of its liberal values and they felt good that their high fees were being used to fund this outreach school. um so outreach schools like the one run by arcadia are increasingly popular among uh, elite private schools in india and scholarship has noted that the segregated education that they allow it sort of keeps alive this discourse of uh, benevolence without challenging notions of class superiority there's work by ashley sri prakash chi and singh um about uh, this process um, but at arcadia the fact that there are RT students in the school does not get the same level of publicity as the outreach school most of the middle class families we interviewed were unaware that the school was implementing the policy yet publicly the policy is no secret it's been in force for 10 years nationally stories about it appear in the newspaper periodically there's a popular bollywood movie about it uh, but somehow not something arcadia school leaders draw a great deal of attention to uh but you know these sort of narratives are present across a variety of middle class actors and 
it's definitely not exclusive to Arcadia and its school leadership and middle class parents. Um, this concern that RT students will experience an inferiority complex is one of the most common middle class critiques of the policy. For example, in an article published in the Hindu just before the act was passed, um, A. Kumaraswamy and Alok Mathur uh, write that such children would be faced with difficulties that stem from contrast in social markers such as dress, possessions, parental profiles, etc which could seriously affect the self-esteem of underprivileged students. Kumaraswamy and Mathur go on to suggest that it would be in the interest of RT students for them to study in separate school and for only those who excel to be integrated in schools with fee-paying students. And this kind of ambiguous role played by a progressive middle class has also been observed elsewhere, so outside of India. Um, for example, research in Australia and the UK has shown that some white middle class parents enroll their children in particular schools because they value diversity. They value the diversity of those schools. But these same parents are then very resistant to diversity when they see it as compromising the education of their children. So there's great research by Christina Ho, Eve Vincent and Rose Butler in Australia and by Diane Ray in the UK on this topic. This research is also consistent with literature on racial segregation in schools in the United States which has shown that white parents who claim to value the racial diversity of their child's school support school policies that result in children being streamed into racially segregated classrooms within the school. I'm thinking here of work by Amanda Lewis, John Diamond and Carolyn Tyson, for example. In other words, there's a growing body of scholarship demonstrating how desegregation can fail, not just through direct opposition, but also alongside the best intentions of seemingly progressive privileged folks. So then would you say that's your conclusion or, or do you have uh, some other closing thoughts? Um, well, there seems to be a bit of a global trend of stereotyping private schools as overtly elitist, driven exclusively by profit and with no concern for social justice or any kind of social agenda. And I think another important thing that our research suggests is that this kind of stereotyping might actually prevent us from recognizing that more complex processes are also at play. We're seemingly progressive pro poor schools and the individuals that populate them avoid desegregation while seeming to support it. The ways that various middle class actors express concern for and think and speak on behalf of the underprivileged actually makes desegregation palatable. All right, then. Thanks for listening. That's all from us today.